0: natural md radio your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now i'm dr aviva Ron. Hi, everybody. Dr. Aviva Ram here, and welcome to episode 105 of Natural MD Radio, making peace in a changing vaccination landscape. In 1986, I was part of one of the first, in fact, I think it was the first, Modern day vaccination protests. I lived in Atlanta, Georgia, home of the Centers for Disease Control. I was a young mom of a one year old, the first of my four kids, and I um, was a midwife. And in my community, there was a woman who'd had a baby and uh, not a home birth. She had a hospital birth. She wasn't one of my clients. She was just a neighbor who um, had a baby and did her baby's routine vaccinations, and her baby had seizures and died within a week. And at that time, uh, she could really, this was a very kind of like, you know, not alternative, not hippie, not looking for problems with vaccinations mom. She was just doing what the pediatrician recommended and what was the sort of standard care du jour. And that got her on a quest and a journey because what happened was the baby got his vaccines and within hours, the baby was having high-pitched screaming. This child had been fine, no traumatic birth, no infections, no other problems, and um, then developed seizures and died. And um, it was after the DPT vaccine, which at the time was... The whole cell vaccination and uh, it had already ceased to be used in other countries. In fact, Japan didn't use it, it used only the acellular vaccine, didn't give it until age two. So, we um, in our community did a lot of research and were picketing the PD- CDC for the um, uh, to adopt the whole cell vaccine. Uh, uh, the acellular pertussis vaccine, which is now used it's the DTAP, which is diphtheria tetanus and the A is for acellular pertussis. Now at the time, the Centers for Disease Control and the medical establishment um, wasn't really used to parents protesting about vaccinations and um, really dismissed our concerns saying that that vaccination could not in any way cause seizures. And at that time, a large number of parents, and when we're talking large number, we're talking, you know, far less than 1%, but a large number for the time began to be concerned because they were seeing um, uh, problems with this particular vaccine, which of course the medical establishment continued to deny and the pharmaceutical companies continue, continue to deny. And so, Uh, There were some lawsuits against some of the vaccine manufacturers, and the vaccine manufacturers said to the U.S. government, if you don't indemnify us against these lawsuits, we're going to stop producing these vaccines because we can't handle the lawsuits. And at that time, the federal government actually indemnified uh, vaccine manufacturers against damages. At that time, also, the federal government established the National Vaccine Injury um, uh, Fund, which allowed for um, parents to recover some amount of money in damages when there were vaccine damages that were able to be uh, attributable to vaccinations. But what happened was the parameters were set so wide that it was very difficult for parents to... um, to make that association clinically. So for example, uh, seizures that started within XYZ number of hours of a vaccination injection could be considered a vaccine injury. But if if the seizures didn't start until say 48 hours later, they could no longer be associated with the vaccination. So... At that time, in my both personal life and in my medical, pra- uh, my midwifery practice, I had a lot of um, concerns myself as a young mom. And at that time, not only was the whole cell pertussis used, but also the polio vaccine that was available was the live polio vaccine, which was the only at that time known cause of polio virus in the United States, which had largely otherwise been eradicated in the US. And so as a mom, <clears throat> I had a lot of concerns to sort through. I was a very natural home birth, um, attachment parenting, homeschooling mom. And the thought of giving my kids vaccinations was really quite frightening. And... um So I'm sharing this, you know, just an awful transparency of my own story so you can understand where I'm coming from as I share what I'm going to share with you today, which is just that I have a lot of empathy and understanding for where parents are coming from with concerns about vaccinations. And um, long story short, over time, it was acknowledged and recognized that the live polio vaccine was a risk for causing polio. And... It was initially phased out to using two live polios, then two killed polios. And now only the killed polio vaccine is used in the US. The live polio vaccine would only ever be used if there were, for example, an acute outbreak and people needed to get vaccinated really quickly um, against uh, the paralytic polio. But it's in terms of children's vaccinations, it's only the killed polio. And also now it's only the acellular pertussis because Thirty something, thirty some odd years later, it's been recognized and um, you know widely acknowledged that that was a, is a potential cause of seizures. Uh, vaccine manufacturers do remain indemnified at this point, and so can't be uh, sued for the sort of normal side effects that happen with vaccinations. So, all this to say that uh, as a young mom in those days, I chose not to vaccinate my children. And over the years, now my children range in age from 25 to 34 years old. Um, my children have grown up and have in various different um times in their life as teenagers or uh, young adults uh, traveled to countries where they did need to get vaccinations for certain um, illnesses, or they couldn't have traveled to those countries, they wouldn't have been allowed in, or traveled to countries where they weren't protected against infections that were endemic in other countries, or uh, one of my kids went to medical school, and you can't go to medical school with you can't you can't waive your vaccinations in medical school. It's a choice. You pretty much have to get vaccinated, and you're going to get exposed to a lot of things. So, all of my children have had. Uh, at least some vaccines. And some of my children now as young adults or adults have had full catch-up vaccinations. So um, what I'm sharing with you isn't just based on sort of theory, it's based on my own experience as a parent. Now, you know, added to that, I am also a Yale trained medical doctor. My training is in uh, internal medicine and family medicine. I'm board certified in family medicine, which means I am licensed to practice full pediatrics and full adult medicine. So I, I do practice as a pediatrician and am well aware of the risks and benefits of vaccinations. But I do want to also, before I jump into that, share a personal story from my own life, which is that I spent a month doing medical work in Haiti as a medical doctor. And while I was there, I um, was exposed to a patient. I walked out of the hospital one day and there was a woman on the side of the road, the sickest woman I've ever seen in my life, the sickest human being I've ever seen in my life, uh, short of maybe an advanced uh, end-stage AIDS patient, which is actually when I came upon her on the side of the road, right outside of the hospital, what I thought she was suffering from. I thought she was suffering from uh, end-stage complications of AIDS. What it turned out after I treated her up close and personal and had her cough in my face um, because she was coughing and coughing up blood um, was that she had diphtheria. And diphtheria is the D in the DTaP vaccine, something that we rarely ever see in the United States anymore. It's largely been eradicated. There are occasionally cases, usually somebody who's traveled to another country and brought it back here. Um, and, uh, but this was widely um, uh, endemic in the uh, 1800s into the early 1900s in the United States. In fact, if you've ever read The Little House on the Prairie books, uh, remember when the family was very, very sick, uh, what they had was diphtheria. Now, here I was in Haiti, exposed, not coming back for two weeks, so my likelihood of bringing the uh, infection back with me to the United States was nil. I would have either contracted it by then and known I had it or not come back if I had it. There, because I would have had to stay there. I wouldn't have been able to come into the United States. But the fact was, I was exposed to an extremely virulent and uh, potentially fatal um, infection and could have brought it back into the United States or could have contracted it myself. And the first thing I did after finishing taking care of this woman uh, and figuring out with my colleague what it was, and we were both quite horrified to discover not only how sick she was, but that we had both been exposed to this really um, serious illness that we never thought we'd ever even see a case of. I mean, you should have seen our faces when we looked at each other and realized what we were treating uh, as a condition in this woman and, and quite how sick she was when we looked at each other with just this sort of like level of awe and horror at this infection that we thought we would never ever see or treat in our lives, let alone be exposed to. And the first thing I did after that was I made a beeline back to the compound I was staying at. I mean, I, I literally ran and was able to make an outgoing call to the U.S. to my husband and said, babe, here's where my vaccination records are. And I need you to see when I had my booster for this and whether I was within date. And uh, I was, fortunately I was within date because I had gotten booster vaccines uh, for medical, my own medical training. Uh, So, you know, I also had to make that decision in my own adult life uh, about, choosing medical education, and then choosing what it meant to get protected from things like hepatitis B, which I got a vaccination for, or an update for my my DTaP. Now, I will say that as a physician, I am very non-interventive. I am very um, aware that we are undereducated about the risks of most every pharmaceutical that were prescribed or that's over the counter. And uh, at the same time, I'm really grateful for conventional Western medicine. And there are reasons that we use certain pharmaceuticals, right? Not everything can be treated with meditation and mindfulness and botanicals and good food. There are times and places where pharmaceuticals have a place, And I am, believe me, um, extremely critical of the pharmaceutical industry. I don't uh, take meetings with pharmaceutical industry representatives. I also don't take meetings with natural products industry representatives. I hold the same standard across the board. And um, there is a tremendous amount of profit and gain at, at the cost of a huge amount of people suffering when it comes to pharmaceuticals. That said... Um, I'm well aware of the history of vaccinations and wrote a book on it called Vaccinations, A Thoughtful Parent's Guide, which both is a very considered review of the history of vaccinations and what parents can do to make a truly thoughtful decision and not just an emotional or reactive or fear-based decision in either direction, but to really understand the risks and ramifications of choosing and and choosing not to vaccinate. And um, politically, I guess you would say I'm really neutral about vaccinations in the sense that um, I think that there is so much that we gain from the fact that we have them and would not want to see an eradication of the international vaccination uh, movement. I really wouldn't. I think that those of us, not I think, I I know that those of us who um, question vaccination safety, or even those of you who choose not to vaccinate are really able to do so based on the fact that most of the population is vaccinated. And we would see horrible returns of um, illnesses that having seen diphtheria, I can tell you, you probably would never want to see and certainly not see in your family members uh, or your neighbors or your friends' children, because they are quite so devastating. And um, at the same time, you know, I know that the history of vaccinations is complicated. People sought vaccinations long before people had money to make off of big pharma. People have been seeking protection against uh, many illnesses for centuries now. And um, so we have to separate the vaccination conversation from the problem with pharma, and it's very difficult to do. The reason I'm taking the time to have this conversation with you today is that in June of this year, 2019, depending on when you're listening, it was June of 2019. Uh, when I say this year, the state of New York made a decision to, uh, eliminate the religious vaccine exemption. And, uh, so the only kind of exemption that you can get in the state of New York is, uh, a medical exemption And I'll talk more about that. And New York is not the only state to do this. Other states have restrictive vaccination laws that leave parents in a situation where they're uh, facing difficult decisions or have faced difficult decisions. And so uh, as of June, I have received a tremendous number of letters from concerned, frightened, worried parents who are seeking my advice and want to know uh, what they can do in the face of of the fact that they can't send their kids to school if they can't get an exemption and don't have a medical exemption. So, you know, what I want to share with you today is really just from the heart and also um, from my opinion and experience as a mom, a midwife who worked with, you know, so many home birth parents, which is a high population of parents who question vaccinations, and also uh, a medical doctor working with concerned parents and as a concerned medical doctor too, watching um, illnesses like the measles start to have bigger resurgences and recognizing the complexities of what everyone is facing. So, you know, the reason I shared my own personal story is just to let you know that I am really, really sympathetic. Um, But also as a a mom and a physician and a midwife, I'm not, and never actually have been anti-vaccinations. And, um, so you know and there are people who really are I was invited to be in a closed group for example by someone who's a member of that group and it's a, a professionals against vaccinations group and um I I actually had no interest in joining because I'm not against vaccinations but received a letter from someone who is a well-known anti-vaccine physician saying, Aviva, you can't be part of this group because we know your work and we know that you're not a hundred percent against the abolishment of the international vaccine campaign. And I I thought, oh my God, you know, no, I'm definitely not against that. And having been and worked in a place where kids still regularly get tetanus and die from it, or people still regularly get infections like diphtheria, having treated many, many adults who grew up in places like India and Africa where there's still paralytic polio and seeing what happens to their bodies. Even a woman that I had as a patient um who was in her late 60s in the United States an American woman who had polio as a child and had severe um, contraction of her diaphragm and lung problems and exercise intolerance and weakness in her limbs uh, you know I, I'm I take it very serious I take these infections also very seriously. And, you know, I also really empathize and understand because I come from the same place. You know, we look at things like the Tuskegee experiments. We look at the fact that Johns Hopkins has just revealed uh, something that has been known since President Clinton's time publicly um, and known for even longer, that they were experimenting on uh, Central American individuals um, not treating for uh, syphilis. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons to... (laughs) have a healthy mistrust and and guarded approach to the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry. And um, at the same time, you know, I really urge us to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's just because the messenger um, is, or just because the manufacturer, if you will, um, has malintentions doesn't mean that the medium is a hundred percent problematic. And I think also that You know, we need to use our voices. You know, from that early protest that I was part of in 1986, we have seen that our voice can make a difference. So, for example, most of the thimerosal, that mercury derivative that is in vaccinations, has been removed from almost all vaccinations. At uh, most of them have none of it, and some of them have really only the smallest amount of of it, like the um, multivial flu vaccine. Um, So we can make change, but we have to do it also in an intelligent way. And right now, um, parents who are concerned about vaccines are not being listened to as intelligent individuals. They're being seen by the public health and the medical, um, medical, in, medical, uh, model as just really hysterical and reactive. So how can we temper our voices to be, um, able to have conversations about our children and our concerns that get heard. So right now, it's a really difficult situation because you also have people in public health and people in medicine who, like me, have traveled to places where they have seen what can happen when there isn't a vaccination uh, program or when people aren't getting vaccinated in adequate numbers to really protect the population. And physicians who are older, who have seen epidemics of polio, like my patient experienced when she was a young woman, um, or who have treated patients who have had the end results of some of these infections. And even prior to nineteen ninety, uh, 1963, before there was a um, massive uh, measles uh, vaccination campaign, three to four million people in the United States did get measles about 400 to, or 500,000 of those cases were reported. And about 48,000 people were hospitalized each year, Uh, 400 to 500 died each year, which I know sounds like a very small number, but it's actually really not when you consider that after the vaccinations were introduced, Um, Those numbers did go down drastically and about a thousand people each year did develop encephalitis. So, um, you know, the, the data on the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine and MMR and autism is such a huge conversation. I'm not going to go into that right now. Uh, For me, what I can say to you is from a scientific perspective, the data is really complex From a larger epidemiologic perspective, it certainly seems that there is not a provable connection, Um, but what I can say is, you know, from a clinical perspective, patients that I've seen With autism, you know, these, like the woman I told you about whose child passed, were not parents who weren't vaccinating or were looking for vaccine problems who will say, look, my kid was fine until this vaccination and then wasn't anymore. So I really can't discount those individual stories. What I can say is that I don't think that what we've seen in terms of the autism epidemic that we have seen grown over the past Thirty years is solely due to vaccinations. There is plenty of autism in the non-vaccinated community, and I think that there are other things in our environment that we equally need to look at. Like you when know, we look at what's going on in Flint and the water situation and lead, that is sort of a an exaggerated or a caricature situation, if you will, in the sense that it's an ex- it's an exaggerated version of what is going on in many municipal water systems. I don't mean exaggerated by the people. I mean, exaggerated in terms of it's a, you know, it's, it's a water problem on steroids. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a a blown up situation that we can all see obviously, but that kind of situation is happening in municipal water systems all over the United States. Um, Food additives and, other environmental contaminants, and you know, I can I can give you long lists. And I would say, look to the work of Philip Landrigan. Listen to my podcast that I did the episode with Philip Landrigan on kids and environmental exposures. Um, read his book on kids and environmental exposures. So to 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 say we should get rid of vaccinations as the response to autism is really missing the bigger picture because there are things that don't provide our kids with any benefit. That are certainly um, as high risk, if not more, more provably high risk, and associated with neurologic problems in children. So, um, you know, I want us to just really not completely throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, many of the parents who have written me um, are really concerned because they want to send their kids to school and are being told that they can't unless their children have. Uh, catch-up vaccinations. And here's just a a few examples of the letters I've received. Um, Hi, Dr. Rahm. We live in New York, and they are no longer honoring religious exemptions for vaccinations. My 15-year-old son has only received one polio and one Hib vaccination when he was four months old. He had a rather bad reaction. For example, he blew up and was unconsolable for over an hour. So we stopped He will be receiving MMR tomorrow. We've been trying to boost his immune system with eating well, sleeping well, and uh, vitamin C, medicinal mushrooms, astragalus, and ashwagandha. We plan to give him the first round of each required vaccine so he can go to school and then do titers to see if any immunity has been achieved. How much should we space out each vaccination? What order do you suggest? Is there any other support he should be doing? Thank you. Another email I received is, um, Hi, Dr. Rahm. I live in New York State, and they just changed the laws and banned the religious exemption for children in schools. My boys are 13 and 16 and not vaccinated. I was wondering what you would recommend as a catch-up schedule for them. We have until mid-September. Time between vaccinations, order of vaccinations, etc. cetera. What do you think? Are there certain vaccinations that are better to do first? Any particular brands to avoid? Also, are there any supplements or alternative therapies that could be supportive for their immune system during the vaccinations? Uh, let's see, um, I'm not an anti-vaccination parent, but like many people, I've been weary of the possibility of side effects from vaccines, including the body making antibody to not only the vaccines, but other ingredients in the vaccines. My younger son, uh, goes to a Waldorf school and I've been getting a lot of concerned email from other parents, um, as a lot of kids are not vaccinated there. So I'm hoping that you might be able to provide some answers. And then finally, um, Dr. Rahm, my daughter is 17. She's not been vaccinated. She's healthy other than suffering from headaches and irregular periods. There is a history of ovarian cancer and liver cancer on her father's side. And I had a flu-like vaccine while I was pregnant, so I'm concerned about her immune system and inflammation and allergic response to neurotoxins. Um My reason for wanting a medical exemption is simply to protect my daughter from the toxic substances in vaccines that are known to cause so much harm and have never been proven safe. This leaves me feeling completely hopeless. My daughter will not be able to go to college without risking severe, chronic, irreversible damage to her health. I was never able to finish college and, as a result, have struggled financially my entire life. I do not want my daughter to suffer this fate. I would give anything to get her a medical exemption. Thank you. Please let me know. So, you know, you may have various concerns along that spectrum of other parents' concerns. And um, I want to address some of those concerns in my conversation with you today. What I really want to emphasize is a few things. One, while I will reiterate that there are some major issues with pharma, what I can tell you from seven years of medical training is that if there's a conspiracy from pharma and the medical establishment that they're in cahoots with doctors, this is absolutely not true. There is no conspiracy that I was ever invited into, nor was anybody I know ever invited into a conspiracy. I don't believe there's a conspiracy to poison our children through vaccinations. Really what there is, is a lot of well-minded doctors, a lot of well-minded public health people, and actually some well-minded scientists who work at pharmaceutical companies and a pharmaceutical industry that has gotten out of hand in its profiteering and um, uh, profit-mongering and fear-mongering. And again, I want to reiterate that I want us to not throw the baby out with the bathwater and be so afraid to vaccinate our kids that we're also passing on these really big fear messages to our kids. Like that um, email I shared with you of a woman who's saying, well, you know, my kid's going to get exposed to these neurotoxins and, you know, doomsday, 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 she's never going to be able to college. So what I really want to urge you to do is if you're in a situation where you are, choosing to vaccinate your children, choosing to give either catch up vaccinations, or maybe you started and then stopped and then you're going to resume, um, to really not let your kids in on your fear about it, because that does not help their immune system and it does not help your kids. And the reality is, is that most va- most kids are going to get, I mean, when I say most kids, I'm talking about 99.9% of kids, if not more, are going to get their vaccinations come through them just fine, maybe have a little aching at the vaccination site, maybe have a little bit of general aching, which is common, for example, with the tetanus vaccine. Uh, They may have a little bit, if they're younger, a little bit of a fever reaction. They may be more sleepy. Their immune system has definitely been given an exposure to something and their immune system is definitely going to react and respond. That's actually not a bad thing. You like when you get sick, you want your immune system to respond. That's how you do build Antibodies. And most of the antibodies that your children will build will be antibodies to the intended exposure that they're getting. So um, I don't want to say that vaccinations have no risks. Every single medical procedure that we all get, ever get, I'm sorry, whether it's getting an IV inserted, which people do for getting vitamins at functional medicine and integrative medicine practices, like it's nothing, which it's not nothing. It is a medical intervention that can cause adverse effects to taking an ibuprofen or a Tylenol has risks. And so it is really important that yes, we be honest and that physicians be honest with with families. And even the National Institutes of Health wrote a white paper on uh, vaccinations. And in that white paper, it does express that there is an increased risk of autoimmune disease that can come as a result of vaccination. So what we're choosing when we do choose to vaccinate is one set of risks over another set of risks. And as individuals, we should ideally, I believe, have the right to make that choice. But it is actually constitutional for a state to make the choice that says in Education that is publicly accessible, including private education, because it is accessible by the general public. Um, that, in order to protect the what is considered the greater good of the population, um, the, st- the state and the federal government does have the right to mandate. Uh, vaccinations. So your only choice then becomes to homeschool. And even there, um, there are some issues, right? We saw in New York state that although this was quickly overturned, parents who had chosen not to vaccinate were actually not allowed to enter, bring their children that is into certain public spaces during uh, the measles outbreak. And, um, uh, you know, if you want to send your kids to school, then you have to comply at this point with the laws. So um, it's really complicated. And um, what I want to do is provide you with the best guidance I can to help you um, make the decisions as you're complying with those laws. So uh, what is required is what's called a catch-up vaccination schedule. And for you know, those of you who are wondering, you know, like the parents who wrote to me and, I, you know, I probably got 20 some odd emails uh, in just a, a one couple of week period, just to give you an example, right when uh, right when the law first passed. Um, it's really not a matter of um, what do I think, like what do I think are the best, is the best order or what do I think is the best um, set of vaccines to give. There is a very specified uh, set of vaccination catch up. Um, uh, there's an order. There is a very specific timing in which vaccinations are supposed to be given and how much time apart. And those are actually also mandated. So for example, if you go to uh, the child-adolescent-catchup-immunization-schedule.pdf, which I've given to you the link for you over at my website at avivaram.com forward slash 105, avivaram.com forward slash 105, those are the show notes for the vaccination. For this topic, you'll find the link to the vaccination schedule, uh, the vaccination catch-up schedule. And what is required in order to matriculate in school are a very specific set of vaccines based on how old... Uh, your child is. And so, for example, uh, the catch-up requirement for uh, New York State-based um, matriculation is uh, your child has to have uh, diphtheria and tetanus um, vaccination and pertussis, so the DTaP, polio vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis B, chicken pox, the meningococcal, uh, and if they're uh, babies or in, in um, uh, babies in uh, nursery care, they have to have the HIB and the pneumococcal conjugate virus, the PCV. So for older children, you actually are, uh, if they're especially age seven through 18, which most kids are going to be, if you're in that age where you're doing either a catch-up schedule and they've never been vaccinated or they're starting uh, grade school, it's the Tdap, the hepatitis B, the inactivated polio, the meningococcal, MMR, and varicella. So I know that still sounds like a lot of vaccinations, but you've actually bypassed quite a few um, if you're vaccinating older children. There are just quite a number of them that they don't need anymore. Now, what's required in order to go to school is that they have received or Uh, be about to receive within two weeks. I think some schools are actually requiring that you have to prove that you've already had it at this point. Um, Previously, before the religious exemption, they would give you two weeks um, in which to get it, and then you could even get a 30-day extension. I don't know how much that's being allowed right now. Um, But you have to demonstrate that your child has received one of all of these vaccinations, and you have to then also show that that the next Set of vaccinations are scheduled on the books with a pediatrician or family doctor who's going to administer those, or your public health department. And each of these vaccinations has a specific schedule. So, for example, with the TDAP, it has to be that the vaccinations are at least four weeks apart. The hepatitis B has to be four weeks apart. The inactive polio has to be four weeks apart. And you want to make sure that you don't get it sooner because if you get it sooner, it's not considered considered valid. So you would have actually wasted getting a vaccination. You would have gotten an extra vaccine that you don't know. So you really want to make sure that when you schedule those appointments, they're scheduled at the appropriate times apart. Now, the other thing is that... Um, While the religious exemption is no longer in place, uh, well, let me back up before I say that. Um, This is a very specific set of vaccinations that are required, and there is a very specific timeline in which to get any one vaccination. Now, certain vaccinations can't be given at the same visit. So you also have to stagger out the visits because you can't give too many live vaccines, for example, at one visit. So um, most of these are inactive or not live, but some of them you have to give at a staggered time. So if you want to um, kind of have a sense of how your child reacts to each vaccine and you're feeling frightened, you wanna think about an appropriate time frame to get these vaccines. So for example, we're in mid-August, if your child is starting school in three weeks, Um, then you want to think about having, you know, an appointment one week, an appointment the following week and an appointment the following week. And so you don't have to give all the vaccines at one time for that first visit. And some of them, as I said, you can't give all at one time. So think about giving your child like you would a, a baby, a more staggered vaccine schedule. You can still do that and you can do that in a condensed period of time and just sort of see how they react. If your child has an untoward reaction to any of the vaccinations, then you can talk with your child's doctor or primary care provider about the need for a vaccine medical exemption. Now, that's a whole other category, and that category still does exist. Now, people will write to me and say, Dr. Rom, can you give me a medical exemption for my child? And I will say right now, don't write to me for that because it's not something I do. You know, I've seen a colleague of mine actually lose their medical license for what I, well, get put on probation for what I actually thought was very inappropriate, which is just randomly giving vaccine exemptions to kids without even actually seeing the kid, medically and some kids actually really would require vaccinations if they're really susceptible or are going somewhere to travel for example and have a high risk of exposure it's actually doing a disservice to kids let alone a public health disservice just to sort of wantonly give out vaccine exemptions mm-hmm. i worked really hard <laughs> to get my medical license and i also think that there's a time and place for you know medical exemptions and i don't think that that is something that should just dis- necessarily be something that a doctor gives out because someone writes an email and says, I need it. So I take the medical exemption very seriously. I only see, I only give a medical exemption in my practice. And I feel like this is really ideally how it should be done. When you've seen a child done a medical exam, done an intake, done an appropriate assessment and make sure that their other medical health is, you know, up to date, other medical care is up to date and also that there is a real reason for that medical exemption. Now, it's up to, some states have defined uh, criteria for medical exemptions. So you can go on to, for example, the California State Board of um, Medicine and you can find, or public health, um, you can find criteria for medical exemptions. They usually include things like a history of um, a severe reaction to a previous vaccination. And that would be defined as something like uh, an anaphylactic reaction to an ingredient or uh, seizures, something very specific, certain autoimmune or immunosuppressive conditions or use of certain immunosuppressive medications would also guarantee or grant someone a medical exemption. So, um, just having, for example, uh, a food intolerance doesn't grant a medical exemption or just having seasonal allergies. But if a child had a a severe history of, uh, for example, I have a patient who um, uh, has Hashimoto's at eight years old and uh, celiac disease, she has two autoimmune diseases. That's a child who would be potentially more high risk for a reaction. And that's a child in whom I am able to get a medical exemption and write a formal medical exemption letter. So if you have a child who has had significant medical problems and you are concerned that the vaccinations might be a risk, that would be something to talk with with your child's pediatrician or family doctor or other doctor who's licensed to give vaccinations and give exemptions and see if your child is is eligible. That would be a reasonable approach. Now, um, so... Which vaccines to give in which order? There isn't any rule about that, and it's really a very personal, uh, a personal choice as to which ones that you would give. So again, that's a conversation to have with your child's uh, primary care p- provider and to do the research yourself. If you're super nervous about giving a vaccination because you're super nervous about the risks and side effects, you might want to start with something that has a very lower risk profile and, you know, get yourself sort of more um, comfortable with it. Like the current Tdap has a very low side effect profile compared to, even though the MMR might have a low side effect profile, it might be the one that you're most scared of because of all the concerns around autism, which, you know, I would say for children at a catch-up schedule, I would truly that is not a concern that I would have. And as I shared with you, my own children went through a catch-up vaccine schedule for various things, international travel, school, et cetera. And um, so, you know, pick where, where your comfort zone is and explain that to your Provider that you want to do this that you know, or maybe you don't want to do it, but you're doing it because you need to do it to get your kid, to, you know, for school. Um, and 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 explain your concerns, but let them work with you to help find a schedule that works for you. Um, you know, I don't know how a school would respond if you hadn't gotten all of the vaccinations, but were in good faith in the process of getting them. States have to comply. Uh, Schools have to comply with state laws. It may depend on whether you're in a public school or a private school, um, but that may be something that you can um, get them to work with you on if you're starting late and engaged in the catch-up schedule as well. Um, So again, these are defined uh, schedules. You can find them online. I will give you the links over at the uh, website and, um, you know, you can kind of figure out a schedule that works for you. Now, if you were to go to the Centers for Disease Control site and look up measles, for example, you'll find that they do actually give uh, criteria for who needs the measles vaccine. And under that, you'll find something really interesting, which is that if you can prove that you are immune to the measles, uh, it's considered according to the CDC in large various groups of populations that you don't require measles vaccine, which is why people who had natural measles prior to the advent of, of the measles vaccine being introduced don't currently require updated measles because they're considered, were considered immune. However, there haven't been any legal standards that I know of that have been established around if you can prove that your child is immune. So, um, Quite a number of families I know have gone to their family doctor, a pediatrician, and gotten titers. Titers are blood tests that can tell you if you have established immunity to an illness. Now, some people have titers because they got only one vaccination, but the one vaccination took well enough to make them immune. Some people have had exposure through international travel to something, but never got sick from it. So for example, I was directly exposed to diphtheria. Had I not been vaccinated, it's possible that I could have gotten diphtheria. It's possible that I might not have gotten diphtheria, but I might have gotten immune to it from that exposure. This is how we develop immunity. But most of us don't get exposed to these things anymore. So most of us are not immune if we've not been vaccinated. This is a big problem with chickenpox, right? It used to be that every child got exposed to chickenpox. They got the chickenpox when they were really young, maybe had a mild case, maybe had a more severe case, you know, 99 out of 100 kids had no untoward problems with it. And everyone was immune to the chickenpox. Um, my child had never gotten the chickenpox vaccine. Actually, when my oldest couple of children were born, the chickenpox vaccine hadn't even been introduced yet. And so then my unvaccinated uh, child at one point went to uh a a developing country. There was endemic chickenpox. So she got the chickenpox vaccine before she went because getting chickenpox as an older teenager has more risks and she was going to be in a country where there was also inadequate medical care if she did get sick. And um, she did not show immunity to the chickenpox on her chickenpox um, titer. So you can choose to get titers. It's going to cost you much more money for that testing. Uh, They may or may not be covered by insurance, but if you want to, one option before you vaccinate is to check for titers. Now, this is not recommended by the Centers for Disease Control, and it's not recommended by the American Academy of Pediatricians either, or the American Association of Family Physicians. Uh, What's recommended is just to get the vaccinations, but I'm sharing with you that this is one option that you could theoretically consider. And another option is to get the first vaccinations that your child needs for school, but then to follow up about four to six, well, you'd have to do it after four weeks because you want to know and you'd want to still be on schedule for the follow-up vaccine. By four weeks, you might not see any immunity, but around four weeks or so, you could check the titers. And if the titers don't show that immunity has been established, then you follow up with the rest of the vaccinations. Now, as I said, I don't know of any statutes or standards around this. So what would have to happen is you would have to approach your school. Um, it may be a state matter, but it should just be a school matter uh, with a letter from your child's physician stating that your child had titers that demonstrated complete immunity. And so, you know, if your doctor is willing to write a letter saying that they're waiving the need for the rest of the vaccinations based on that immunity, um, that would potentially fly. Although, I don't know um, whether it would or not. I know families that are currently trying that in the state of New York, but it's too early to to tell whether it's going to go because this is all brand new with the removal of the religious religious exemption there. So, you know, that's another option. Titers from, um, natural immunity tend to stay high titers from vaccination immunity and titers from even just one vaccination immunity can wane over time so it might be that you're able to get a pass on that you know for now but it may be that in a few years somebody might say you got to repeat the titers to see if there's still immunity or repeat the um the vaccination or, you know, get the complete vaccination series if you didn't. Now, you know, one thing that I haven't really talked about is um, your own concerns about your child going to school in the setting of uh, what has now been uh, several years of growing rates of measles And particularly if you're in a community where there is a high rate of non-vaccination, then your child certainly has a much greater risk of contracting the measles. Now, I work um, with a lot of families whose kids are in Waldorf schools, and I have worked in that community for the past 35 years. I can say to you, for example, that is a highly unvaccinated community historically, and that vaccination, that community is the community where I have treated the measles where I have treated, um, dip, uh, pertussis, whooping cough. Um, so, you know, your decision, um, also may be that you don't even live in a state that's required vaccinations, but you may just be at a point where you're too concerned about your unvaccinated child in this setting. Um, you know, for me as a parent, uh, tetanus vaccine was one that I certainly wanted my children to have as they got older anyway, so would have done that for them no matter what. Um, my family spends a lot of time outdoors hiking I, and I've mm. seen tetanus and I don't want to ever see that again. Uh, it's not something I wanted my kids to ever have to worry about. And it has a really high fatality rate. So, um, you know, that may be a vaccine that you just want your kids to have anyway, regardless. Um, you may want your kids to have the measles vaccine just because you're really worried. and um uh, rubella is another one. That's the, that's the R in measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, before the onset of the rubella vaccination, uh, there was a condition that was really common in the United States, sometimes as much as uh, 60,000 cases a year of something called congenital rubella syndrome, where a mom uh, was pregnant and got exposed to someone who had rubella, usually a child who had it, German measles. And, um, Contracted it and the baby in utero contracted it It can cause deafness, blindness, and other problems. So, um, once that vaccine was introduced, that basically disappeared. So, my commitment was always to have my childbearing daughters have that vaccination when they were teenagers. So, um, you know, there might be some other nuances that you're not familiar with that I hope, you know, hearing some of this might encourage you to think about actually getting those vaccines for your children's benefit if you're not, you know, in a place where you're doing all of them. And I talk about all of that in my book, Vaccinations, A Thoughtful Parent's Guide, which is a very, um, you know, it's not a a pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine book. It's a really, it's a book about vaccinations. Some of the vaccinations themselves are a little bit, uh, the conversation is a little bit dated because at that time that I wrote that book, um, and it's way too much of a beast, so I don't plan to update it anytime soon. uh, And the conversation is just way too, complex right now to even try to update it. Um, but it, so at that time when I wrote it, all the vaccinations still had thimerosal in them, for example. Uh, some of the vac- some new vaccinations have been introduced since that time, but the history, the decision-making process, it's all very much the same. So it's still a very worthwhile um, read for you and um, has been described by immunologists and uh, at the time Mothering Magazine as... Uh, the best vaccination book on the market, because it is really non-judgmental and non-hysterical. And I think that's what's really important in this conversation, is that we not judge other parents, we not judge ourselves, that we not be judged by the medical establishment. But at the same time, even though it's a scary choice for some people, and for some people it's not, for some people it's like, you know, my kids are getting vaccinated. This is not something I'm concerned about. But for many parents who, you know, are familiar with some of the issues around other medical oopsies, um, there is concern. And of course, if you're parenting naturally, the idea of putting foreign ingredients, and particularly some ingredients that we would never intentionally put into our bodies—otherwise, preservatives, uh, aluminum as an adjuvant, um, things like that—it can be frightening. But again, you know, I want to keep it in perspective and not to say that um, two wrongs make a right because they don't. We can, we can. Agitate for and active, be activists for better ingredients in vaccines and more transparency about some of the risks. And at the same time, you know, we might be a little bit. Um, missing the bigger picture, focusing on one thing when there are a host of things that our kids are being exposed to that most of us are not keeping our kids from getting exposed to, whether it's drinking out of plastic water bottles to any number of things that we might let people put on our lawns or in our paints in our homes, which actually may have a bigger risk with much less benefit than, or no benefit compared to the benefits we do get from vaccination. So um, I want to address a few other um, uh, issues. Uh, One is things that you can avoid that may increase risk of vaccination, which is the use of Tylenol. Now, this is very um, theoretical information that I'm sharing with you, but we do know, for example, from a, a review of uh, cases that was done in uh, Scandinavia that looked, it was Denmark actually, that looked at over 70,000 cases of kids with who developed autism. Um, the use of Tylenol in pregnant women, was an absolute increased risk factor. So, one of the things I encourage pregnant women to not use is Tylenol. And it was based on um, when, what trimester it was used and how frequently. So, depending on the trimester and the frequency and amount of use, the risk appeared to go up. Oh, am sorry, it wasn't, I, I have to apologize, it wasn't autism, it was ADHD and hyperkinetic behavior. Um, that was the risk factor. And, um, the connection I'm making is that it's neurologic consequences. So we know that Tylenol uses up one of our body's naturally produced and most important antioxidants, something called glutathione. And in fact, when a child comes into the hospital with Tylenol poisoning, which I've treated many times in my career as a physician, uh, we use something called NAC, we use something called NAC, Protocol. And that's actually high dose administration of a supplement, actually, also used as a pharmaceutical called N acetylcysteine. N acetylcysteine is the body's natural precursor to making glutathione, which gets Eaten up, The glutathione gets eaten up in detoxifying from Tylenol. Now, one of the most common recommendations when kids go in for vaccinations is to give them a Tylenol preventatively to prevent aches, pains, and fever symptoms, or if they have any of those and you haven't given it preventatively to give Tylenol. If they have those symptoms, my recommendation to all of my patients, family members, friends is do not give Tylenol at all in the vicinity of a vaccination, either preventatively or in the days afterward. We don't know, but I would recommend letting the body's own natural detoxification factors be at the highest and not give something that has been associated with some neurologic consequences, but also eats up glutathione. Uh, Does that mean you can give N-acetylcysteine to protect against vaccinations or anything to protect against vaccinations? I really don't recommend it. Look, we have to trust our children's bodies. Children have been exposed to these organisms from time immemorial. Yes, through more natural routes like sneezing and coughing and touching fomites, things on dust surfaces. It's not the most natural way to get exposed to things is intramuscularly, but we have to trust our kids' bodies to respond well and to respond in the way that is intended, which is in fact an immune and inflammatory response. So we don't want to give things that quash or quell that response, because then we might actually be interfering with the efficacy, the effectiveness of the vaccination. And within that, I include anything that would alter the immune system. So don't give, in my opinion, I don't recommend giving, I'm not telling you what to do, but I don't recommend giving echinacea because we know that affects and alters cytokines and macrophages, which are immune system cells. Vitamin C, which we know alters the same immune modulating medicinal mushrooms or adaptogens, leave those off. You know, use those during cold and flu season to support your kids' immune system. But don't use them around the time of vaccinations because we just don't know. And there's no evidence that they provide any protection. Homeopathics. Now, over my 35 years of work as a midwife, I can tell you for sure that I have had many women come into my medical practice pregnant, seeking my services as a midwife who were, and I'm doing air quotes here, vaccinated homeopathically as children. So they never had conventional vaccines, they were given homeopathics. And now that they're adults and pregnant, they're getting their routine. Um, prenatal blood work, which includes them, uh, their immunity, their titers to things like rubella, and I can tell you a hundred percent of the time, a hundred percent of those women, not one of them was ever immune to things that they were homeopathically vaccinated for. So I don't recommend homeopathically preventing uh, any reactions to vaccinations. Um, I think that there's probably no harm if you want to try that because. You're basically giving something that has been reduced to a, a level where there's no pharmacologic activity. Um, but I don't think that, uh, that they benefit, and that's my personal opinion. And please know that I'm saying this as someone who, as a, even as a practicing physician, 99% of my recommendations in my medical practice are nutritional and botanical not pharmaceutical. So, you know, my first go-to is always lifestyle and natural therapies. I'm not someone who went to med school and now I'm all gung-ho about giving medications. I'm not. And particularly if you, you know, follow my website, you know how opposed I am to overprescribing of medications. So, you know, I would say avoid anything that interferes or acts on the immune system and don't use Tylenol. You know, I don't recommend using ibuprofen. I would just say, you know, if your kid has any little mild expected vaccine um, symptoms afterwards, just keep them comfortable, keep them home for a couple of days. And if your child has any significant vaccine reactions, high-pitched crying or screaming, they're not acting like themselves, they're exceptionally sleepy, they have uh, any uh, immune system reaction, let your child's doctor know immediately and really take note of which vaccination that was. and if that's something that you feel really concerned about um, giving again, let your doctor write a waiver that says that one is going to be put off until you know six months from now instead of four weeks from now. And that is, you know, I think something that um, uh, a physician would be usually willing to do um, for you to support you to, make sure that something your child was not super reactive to. The other thing that I want to emphasize is that there are very specific guidelines on the Centers for Disease Control for when not to vaccinate children. And children should not be vaccinated generally when they are sick or feverish with another illness. Now, a lot of times what will happen is a family doctor or, or pediatrician will say, "Oh, you know, you're bringing your you're bringing little Sarah in, or you're bringing little Noah in um, for his um, vaccine for his, for a cold. Let's or if, you know for the flu or for an earache. Let's just go ahead and vaccinate at this visit." I would strongly urge you not to do that, even if it's just a little cold. Bring your child back when their immune system's at its peak, not when they're already you know struggling with something or fighting against something. And you can just explain that to, her. even if you have an appointment set up for vaccinations, to say, you know what, we're going to reschedule for another time. It's very, very reasonable. And that's something that I always do in my own personal medical practice. Um, let me think of what else I want to share with you before we wind down for today. Um, You know, homeschooling is certainly a possibility. I homeschooled my own children, not to avoid vaccinations. I homeschooled my children because I wanted to homeschool my children. Um, You know, I think that at this point, it's, you know, if you're just completely opposed to vaccinations, it's certainly the only um, real option that you have in certain states, in states where there are no exemptions. Um, You know, I think that it's fair for parents who are choosing to vaccinate to make a decision to vaccinate. I think it's really a complicated, um, you know, sort of not in my backyard statement that parents are making that they don't want their vaccinated kids around other vaccine, unvaccinated kids because if the vaccinations work, the vaccinations should work. That said, it really doesn't take that much of a decline in vaccination rates to start to see an increase of um, illnesses in a in a population. So for example, um, you know, we hear a lot about anti-vaxxers and non-vaxxers. It's really a very tiny, tiny percentage of the population. But when we went from 92.7% of people vaccinated for measles down to 90% of people vaccinated for measles, it was enough of a shift to start to start to see the numbers coming back up again. You know, and one of the things that you want to think about too is not just your child at your child's age now, but your child as an older person. And, you know, kids are going to grow up. They are going to make decisions like my kids. Um one of my children Um, When she was, um, I guess she was about 18 or 19, she um, decided to work at a summer camp with medically challenged children, and there was um, a large group of immunocompromised children. So she was working with kids who had severe autoimmune conditions and uh, HIV and other medical conditions that made them really susceptible to somebody coming in with an illness. And so this was something that she really wanted to do. And she was told by the camp that she couldn't work there if she wasn't vaccinated. And so she made the decision to go through a vaccine catch-up schedule. As I shared with you, one of my children decided to go to a country where there were definitely going to be exposures. Um, And another one of my children uh, not only went to medical school, but spent six months working in medical relief work in a developing country. So uh, with a lot of illnesses. So, you know, your kids are going to ultimately make these decisions. So, um, you know, whether this decision is something that you're facing now, uh, something you've decided to do because, you know, you're concerned about your child getting sick now, whether your child's school is situation is requiring you, or whether you're thinking ahead to a time where you need to make these decisions, I hope this information has been really helpful for you. Uh, if you go to the uh, links over at a vivaram.com forward slash 105. You'll find the link for catch-up vaccinations. Now that's standard and universal. That's used all over the United States. You'll find the New York state laws for what are required, but that's going to be pretty standard. And the catch-up vaccine schedule you're going to find by children's. It's It's created by school age. If your child is Going to a school that is not graded. So, for example, there's mixed age grades. You give your child the vaccinations that are for the age grade they would they, for the grade they would be in chronologically by their age, and you'll find that information from. Um, Kindergarten all the way through uh, secondary education. So, through when they would start college and what they need. So, you know, I hope this has been really helpful. Um, You know, I I guess you would call me a vaccine moderate. Uh, Like I said, I'm super sensitive as a parent who had to make this decision, uh, both whether to vaccinate. And some people, of course, think that that should not even be a decision. Um, I feel that, um, you know, we all should have a right to choose what we do with uh, our bodies. This is a much more complicated one because our decision does affect not only other people, meaning our children, but also our communities. Um, But also I'm not um, anti-vaccine in the sense that I'm very well aware of what can happen and have seen and worked with Many many patients over the years, firsthand, who have you know suffered the consequences of uh, endemic illnesses or uh, outbreaks of illnesses in their communities. So, you know, I will say, uh, you know, as a mom, it is certainly the toughest decision I faced raising my kids. Um, it created a lot of fear for me to have unvaccinated kids. I went to the playground once when my son was a little. Uh, toddler. And uh, there was another child playing there. And uh, my kids, my son and this little child were leaning on monkey bars together, you know, and as little kids are apt to do, they were leaning their faces on them. And I was sitting on the bench next to the mom. And you could see that the other kid visibly had a runny nose and red eyes. And I said, like, oh, he's sick. And she said, oh, no, he just got his vaccinations yesterday. And I remember that because like I said, at this point, only the live polio was used and that was how you would shed it was through body fluids or your stool. And I remember that fear, like just that fear. And it wasn't something that I enjoyed living with either. So, you know, I really empathize with making the decision both ways. I can tell you as a physician who has counseled, you know, hundreds of parents as a midwife who has counseled hundreds of parents as a Person who has a website where people write to me, you know, tens of thousands of families, most people come through vaccinations completely fine. Most kids, you know, we live in a culture where I think that the fear of the vaccinations has started to outstrip um, the ability to make a, a safe, sensible decision. And on the other hand, I think that physicians need to be more aware that and more honest about all of the risks. I wish you the best making this decision. I wish you the best navigating states and schools and situations that you're in. Um, You know, I feel like it's so important that you have a physician that you can talk with and trust, and I hope, you know, wish for you that you find that. Um, I am not, just to be very clear uh, taking emails and calls and patients from families looking for vaccination exemptions. So, uh, you know, I take patients for other reasons. And if there's a reason that vaccinations comes up, that's one thing. Um, so it's not something I will give you a heads up to write to me about, but I do, um, you know, I do really wish you the best in making this decision and, um, hope that this has been super, super helpful and brought you some peace of mind. And I look forward to talking with you next time on Natural MD Radio. Again, if you missed the link, it's aviva at avivaram forward slash 105. And also there is my book, Vaccinations, A Thoughtful Parent's Guide.